reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, um, and that's going to be on page 810 in the Black Bibles that are on the chairs. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Good morning. My name is Kent. I'm on our pastoral team here at SOMA. And uh, I want to recognize really quick, if you were here last week and you've been tracking along, um, we did, we've been going through line by line, verse by verse of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you realize we just did lust, so we should be doing divorce this week, but are instead doing O's, we have not skipped divorce. We are simply coming back to it next week. Uh, there's an element that needed preparation for the sermon that just needed an extra week. And we're like, you know what? Truth be told, you can do these out of order. Uh, and it only makes a certain amount of difference. So, um, And, you know, there's just been a lot of intense sermons recently. It's kind of nice to, you know, not just follow lust with divorce. So, all right, uh, take a week. Kent, you know, get some uh, R&R there on oaths. Um, that's what I thought. And I was just telling somebody, this is a surprisingly relevant and intense sermon for our culture. And that's particularly surprising because it doesn't feel like that at all. So let's pray because it's not a restful week. So, Father God, Lord, it's completely true that there, there are no off weeks when it comes to sitting under your word because your word has the power to cut and to shape and to mold and to create worlds, and to recreate ours. And Lord, with your words having so much power, and us having your image, um, our words have amazing power to create. And ultimately, Lord, this is a reminder, and can be a reminder to us, that often with our words, we use it to create chaos, and a disconnect from reality. So Lord, give us both the ability to hear what is maybe uh, almost like a repeatingly intense prophetic word from your Sermon on the Mount without weariness, but rather hopefulness. Without condemnation, but yet appropriate feeling of humility that moves to finding life in this area of creating worlds with our words and controlling it with our words. Lord, we need your spirit. We ask you to move. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our world is increasingly reflecting the values of a new culture and a new generational uh, culture that is quickly moving to power. So if you've often heard kind of like talks of, you know, different generational names, Gen Xers, Baby Boomers, uh, Greatest Generation Millennials, and there's always this sense of tension between generational divides, and here's why. Because one generation is at power. They are the policy makers, they are the top employers, they are the culture makers. And they have a certain amount of values. And slowly but surely, another generation comes from underneath that culture, 
And as that culture moves into retirement and as the next culture moves into places of power and culture making and authority, their values are different and they reflect maybe even an opposite reaction to the last generation's values. And people have been saying all across, in fact, uh, John Thompson, I think, puts it really well in his book, Jesus, Bread, and Chocolate, Crafting, or Crafting a Handmade Faith in a Mass Market World, that the world has been shifting to a dominant value from baby boomers in the greatest generation of excellence. Things are done excellently and efficiently. And so if you can mass market and make it even more excellent, make it simpler, make it faster, make it better, that's a good thing. To then the Gen X or millennial value of authenticity. I don't want it mass produced. I want it individually tailored to me. I don't want it to feel like it's coming off an assembly line. I want it to feel like it has the niches of a handmade, homespun, limited craft or small batch. And so, yeah, People are doing everything from like making their own clothes to brewing their own beer to making and vinyl hounding. I mean, vinyl hounding is a thing, and that's buying records, by the way, for you uncool people. And uh, it's buying records of paying $40 to, for something that you can hear for free on Spotify. It's because Spotify is excellent. It is creating something that's for the masses and can be reprodu reproduced quickly and is broken up by commercials. But vinyl is done with authenticity. I hear the cracks and the pops and the imperfections and the way that it was meant to be listened to by the original recording, I guess. And it gives you a sense of feeling of being more intimately connected to the musician and the music. And this concept of curating our entire worlds has gone to beyond just like what we touch and think and buy and, and our goods and our services but it's also gone to curating our lives, like on a existential level. And the first stop on that train has been social media, in which it was meant to connect people, and it's done that. But it's also created the ability to edit avatars and to curate your existence before what you want to be seen and what you do not want to be seen. You will never see a bad picture of a person on Facebook or Instagram. You won't. Because six filters, four angles, and 23 expressions later, you've got, you're good to go. So you have the ability not only to edit your image, uh, like your physical image, but you also have the ability to just edit what you think about something. Or you don't have to react right now. You can take a moment, think, figure out the best statement, and then push it back out into the world. I remember, this dates me both young and old, I guess, to some people in the room, instant messenger became a thing while I was in middle school. And my town was an MSN messenger, not an AIM town, if you know what those words mean. And I just remember this was so cool because I loved thinking of funny, witty things. And I remember, like, growing up, like, just thinking through situations, like, if this happens, I would say this, and that would be funny. And... All of a sudden, I have this moment where people send me an idea or a phrase, and now I have two minutes or five minutes to maybe pretend like I'm having other conversations with multiple windows, but really just be focusing on that one thing and what can I say, and then at the last second, typing it all out and sending it back, and man, I nailed it every time because I had time, and I was able to curate my wit.
and my responses. So it seemed like I was just firing these off. And the reason this all becomes interesting is because this isn't just a modern phenomenon. Social media exposed it, but did not create it. Because Jesus' words could be applied to the exact same thing that social media has created, just in a different way in his time and his culture. That we find out since the beginning of time, just like the prophets Kurt Smith and Roland Orzabal said, everybody wants to rule the world. And they don't want to rule the world like a king rules it. They want to rule it like a God force rules it. And that I create a reality that is preferable to me. And everybody exists in the context of my reality by me controlling what they know, controlling what they don't know, and therefore manipulating them to my purpose. I want to show, because it's like, that's not really evident from what you're talking about with those. Like, honestly, like when I first opened up this text, I was. I was like, phew, all right, week off. I don't remember the last time I was flown to North before the Lord. Mulligan. And uh, I was like, we'll just, we'll do it. We'll just be like, this is what these, this is what apparently Jesus thought was important. And, you know, whatever. That was them. This is us now. And then I really started getting into it. And I realized, holy cow, this actually could be one of the most prophetic words for our culture. And so this is what I want to do. Really simple. I want to just show you context. I want to show you the context of what's going on in Jesus' day. And then I want to show you how that is actually the exact same context going on in our day. And then I want to contextualize it to say, how do we, in the midst of a larger society and culture, become a prophetic presence by actually making this a part of our lives? So that's it. Just the context of then, the context of now, and contextualizing it for right now, right here. And so context, if you just pick it up, in, uh, on page 810, again, if you've closed your Bibles, verse 33, it says this. Again, you've heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, this is interesting because it's a break of pattern of what Jesus has been doing up until, up until now. At least it seems like it. Because up until now, we've been reading. He's like, says, hey, I want to show you that what it means to have a deeper righteousness than just surface level, but something that goes all the way to your heart. So we'll talk about the things that are in your heart, such as anger. And you've heard it, you shall not murder. And they had from the Ten Commandments. And then you've heard it said, you shall not uh, lust or commit adultery with a woman is where he starts. And again, makes the top ten. They know that one. And then if you go to oaths and it says, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. There are things about being false in the Ten Commandments, but it's not immediately clear if he's pulling into the Ten Commandments. And actually, he's, he is, and I'll show you that in a second, but he's also sh- like bringing in kind of an amalgam of a lot of different concepts in the Bible. Like Leviticus 19 says, you shall not swear falsely, but uh, fulfill every oath. Deuteronomy 23 says, make a vow. If you do, don't be slow to fulfill your vow to the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5, when a man makes a vow, he must honor what he has said um, before the Lord. Jesus is not saying, do not make a public promise. Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, is going to make a public promise and is going to swear before the Lord. He's going to say, hey, what I'm writing you, I swear before God that I do not lie. And so if it's simply, hey, you can't swear to God's name on it, then, then Paul violates it in Scripture himself. 
as well as the Bible's going to affirm a covenant of marriage, a time where people would publicly profess, I am committing my entire existence to this person. That's why you do a wedding ceremony, even if you have a justice of the peace in the city hall, you have to have witnesses sign on because it has always been the practice of I declare publicly before God and these witnesses that I will fulfill my end of the covenant. And the Bible puts that forward and says, no, you make that public promise. What, what God is doing, what Jesus is doing, when he lays out all of this idea of, of having vows, is he's allowing their culture to actually be able to function. Because you can't function in a culture like theirs in the ancient Near East without the ability to make a delineation of what is true and less true. So this is why. Let's say you have neighbors, and of course this is an agricultural society. Everyone's working the land. And somebody's donkey goes missing. The man who has a missing donkey turns to his neighbor and says, I saw him take it. And if you count up his donkeys, he'll probably have one more, and nobody would be able to verify that. I mean, he could have just not been, I mean, there, no one's reporting these numbers anywhere. But So he can't prove it, but he's saying, like, I saw this guy take my donkey. The other guy says, no, I, I swear that I did not take your donkey, and so now what do you do? You got the genuine, like, his word against theirs, and, and, and how do you know who's telling the truth? And so God lays out in his commands for his people. That if you do it, it's serious, but you can come in before and say, I swear before God that I saw this man take my animal. And so now you have invoked a higher power and a higher seriousness of that I am willing to take on the wrath of God if I'm lying. And so if that man who's accusing, his words turn out to be false, like, he didn't take the donkey. The, the guy's cousin borrowed it because he was putting it in a driveway, and you've got to have a donkey for that. So he took the donkey and borrowed it. Whoops. Whether he knew that or not is irrelevant because he was willing to go on record and stand before God that he was so certain of that reality. And so this gets really serious. I mean, it's an honor and shame culture, and immediately you are put to public shame. You have publicly professed something that was not true. Your word is no longer ever to be accepted. And then beyond just being shamed, if it was serious enough, you would be killed. Like there was, if you particularly swore to the government and, and did not make good, you could be executed in this situation. And then even if they didn't do any of that, it wasn't like, oh, you got away with that one. Because you called down the wrath of God on your head. They don't have to kill you. They don't care when you die. They know that in a pre-modern society where they very much so see and believe that the gods are very much so actively involved in your life, that you are cursed both in your existence now and forever for invoking the power of God. Another way you could say it is that they use the name of the Lord in vain, which is where that commandment comes from. It's actually not talking about swearing or cursing like we do. That's other parts of the scripture if you want to get into that. But it's about using the Lord's name to verify you the reality that you are claiming to be true. And if you can't do that, if you can't, like, because God's going to say, hey, never use my name in vain. You can use it, but never in vain. 
people realize, okay, I, I may not be 100% sure sometimes. I'm more sure than not, but I don't want to necessarily go that far out on the limb. So they created associative ideas and terms that you could swear on, and it would give you a different level of seriousness or a different level of, of needing to make good on your word. And you get those actually in verse 34. It says, like, what are you going to do if you can't swear on God? How can, you, how can you survive in society? I mean, again, this is pre-surveillance cameras, pre-DNA testing, pre-polygraphs. You have to have an ability to be able to delineate who's telling the truth. And so they'd say, okay, well, but uh, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for that is the throne of God, or by the earth, for that is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that than this comes from evil. And so Jesus is actually going to expound on this later in Matthew 23. And he's going to talk about, hey, some of you swear by the temple, and that's not a big deal. But you, if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you have to make good. And he's like saying, like, what's bigger, like the gold in the temple or the temple that makes that gold holy? And so you're a fool if you think that somehow you can create a different level of being truthful. And therefore, you're curating the reality that you're giving people. You're telling them what they want to hear, that I want to be able to have people believe me and think that I'm serious without the consequences of if I'm not. In our day and age, this doesn't become just bearing false witness. It just simply becomes the art of lying. The art of, sometimes it's not even lying. It's tailoring truth. Because you don't have to actually say words to change how people think about what is actually true and real. And lying seems like a really big, like, it's not that it doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, we recognize on some level relationships are built on trust and lying erodes trust and trust is gained quickly and lose, lost, or gained slowly and lost quickly. And we get lying's a big deal. It's just a known reality. Everybody's lying. To some degree, people are being less than honest. You and I are being less than honest every day of our lives. It's why the legal system exists. So that you can have ways of verifying that this actually is my will because it's been legally stated. Or I actually do agree to all the terms and conditions and you did because you checked the box regardless if you actually ever read those. Because who does? And so we have all these legalities to say, hey, this is what's going on, because we know that people will just try to come back and say, I never, and you can say, but you did, or at least you signed your name on the line. And we just live in this sense of like, yeah, we have to live that way, because like everybody's lying. Again, I, I didn't actually get the author on this, uh, but there's a book, People of the Lie. Somebody wrote it, and... Uh, they said that it's interesting phenomenon. They, they studied just children, and they wanted to know, hey, do children learn to lie by example, or does it come by honestly? Do they actually just pick it up one day? And he actually was able to find out, no, like, children just pick it up. There's not a point where they see it modeled. 
and if they do, that's not necessarily the controlling influence. There's just a day of epiphany where they realize my words and reality don't have to line up. Louis C.K., who I know is a very discredited source these days, um, before he was, uh, just spoke to this. He said, like, how do I tell my daughter uh, not to lie? Because it's overwhelmingly useful. And there's just that moment where, like, you know, they say, did you take the chocolate? And she did, and she's scared, and she knows the consequence, and she's freaking out, and, and they're screaming, did you take it? Do you know? And she just says no, and everyone smiles and says, thank you, never mind. And he says, how do I teach her to not apply that perfect scenario over and over again for the rest of her life? Because I'm, like, I'm in the midst of this right now with our middle child. Our older child, he's well past the point of lying. He's off the end. But either way, we're working on uh, the, the second one already. So apparently we're in the twos, and that's where it starts. Because there's that time. There's, before you get to that day of epiphany, you can just at, they will just, they never plead the fifth. You just ask them, did you do it? Yes, I did. Let's go to the bathroom. Here we go. And, you know, so, like, you just get, it's not a problem. And then there's that day where you look at them and say, did you eat the chocolate that is now smeared all over your mouth? And they look at you and they do this. Okay. So then you have to trap them in their story. The first question is always, are you lying? And they're gone. And, you know, so here we go. There's the slow cry. And here we go. Let's, let's go to the bathroom. And so it comes upon us and just we get into it and it gets so into our culture that you spend part of your day, every day, assessing is what people are saying around me true and to what degree is it true. And, again, it doesn't have to be of just what they said. It can be what they admitted. It can be, uh, do I think that they're telling me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Because you can get a cool hybrid that sounds true because it has the truth in it. Or you can even say truth, but be actually distorting reality. Like, I can say it with a sarcastic inflection, so no one actually thinks I'm being truthful in that moment. Or I can say something so bold and so audacious that in the moment they think, certainly that's not true. I said it at the right time so that though I said something completely honest, it wasn't accepted like that. Isn't that crazy how good we are? And so, in this time and age, we have to sit there figuring out, okay, what is true? And here's another thing that complicates it all. Truth is far more complex than we think. And postmodernism has taught us that. So I know I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be really down on postmodernism. Um, postmodern thought obviously comes after modern thought. Modern thought was the concept that the world is knowable, and it's empirically knowable. So if you can see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, feel or I said feel it. Uh, if you can do all those things, then you can find the right way to isolate an idea. You can figure everything out. And so then we started figuring everything out and then finding out some things are true in this context but aren't so true in that context. Sometimes they're true in this culture, but they're not true in that culture. I actually think postmodern thought has done a lot to help the gospel. 
I know that sounds crazy because we think like, well, no, postmodern thought says like, oh, like my opinion is, is more important than any fact. And so like, I'm don't, I don't have to submit to absolute truth. But here's the problem with modern thought. Modern thought is if I can't taste, smell, see, think, or, or not think, but just like it's not empirically provable. I can't get to the five senses today. I, you know what they are. <laughs> Google them. And if I can't find it amongst the five sentence, uh, sen- uh, five senses, Google that too, then it doesn't exist. And postmodern thought came and said, no, truth is much more complex than just what we can empirically prove. There are cultural relative principles in play. Now, ultimately, it goes dangerous because then it does question, does truth ever really exist? But still, it, it made us realize that there's things like narrative creation, and that's real. So narrative creation is this. So God created with his words. He gave you the Imago Dei. He gave you the ability to create with your words. And this is what I mean. Somebody taught me this, and I thought this was powerful. You can take a child who's struggling in school, is a nuisance to the class and to a teacher. And you can now do two, you can create multiple narratives. Here's one narrative you can create for him. He's a problem child. And that will follow him the rest of his life. He will believe it. Everyone who interacts with him will believe it. He will interact with authority, with school, with learning, with life outside of school completely differently because he has received a narrative from you. You are a problem child. You're a problem adult. You can take that same child and say over him, you are full of life and you don't respond to conventional learning styles. It is equally true. Those are both in some ways true. There is a problem to what he's doing, and sometimes that needs to be said. However, it's equally true to say, now, hey, you're full of life. You, you are a racehorse. You've got a ton of energy. And now he will interact with authority differently, interact with school differently, interact when he gets out of school. And, and, and the world itself will be a different scenario playing out for him. Again, in many ways, we need to realize that the negative is not always where we go. That's where we want to go, and it not, doesn't need to go. Sometimes it needs to be said. We need to recognize when things are a problem. But sometimes we need to realize there are multiple narratives going on, and they're no less true. They're just not the whole story. And, and so in that, as we start to realize, okay, no, truth is complex, again, then we go too far and realize, but then we get frustrated. Okay, truth is complex, and what's culturally relevant here is not there. And so is truth ever really pinpointable at all, or is there no absolute truth? A- and I don't have time to argue that point. I just think at an existential level, we all know that there is some a- absolute truth out there. I think even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, I don't buy it. You need to prove it to me. Again, don't have time. But why do you get so angry when you feel like, social media or the media or the government is suppressing information, is suppressing truth. Because you believe, though truth might be very complex, that it's real, it's out there, it's to be found, and it's being distorted. And where there is distortion of truth, there is truth. And so we might get frustrated, we might realize it's complex, but we know it's out there. And, and so then when we start to curate it, when we start to do it, it, it I've already said it, but let me uh, allow Dallas Willard to restate it because I need to go back to this idea, and, and he's got better words than me. 
He writes in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, talking about this passage of scripture. He says, the essence of swearing that Jesus targets here is about invoking someone or something else, especially God, to make your words seem more significant and weighty. Aim is to impress others with your seriousness or your piety so that you get what you want. It's a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to possess them for our purposes. It is a seeking to control other people. Even white lies or withholding painful truths on some level still falls in this category. I know there's always that point of like, what about white lies? I mean, what about just like things that actually make, make people feel better or keep them from feeling worse or it just doesn't need to be said and it makes it a whole lot simpler just to kind of skip over all this information and get them on board. You're still choosing the reality that you're allowing other people to know. Sometimes people need to know their weaknesses. And if I'm honest, me not wanting to tell them has nothing about protecting their ego. It has everything to do about I don't want them to kill the messenger. I want to control what I give them, even though they desperately need to know that that weakness is there because it could be a fatal flaw for them. And so that's true of those, but it's in reality, even if we say like, well, white lies aren't a problem, like even if we say like, no, go for it, white lie all you want, that's like not a majority of what we're dealing with in this room right now. Like we are always wanting to find where brokenness of the world has been put upon us, either through our sin or other sin or just even the natural disorder of our world. And to create a reality, to change people's reality, is to take that brokenness that has either been given to me or caused by me and to push it upon someone else. And now they have to deal with it. And they now get the choice to decide, do I want to deal with this brokenness or sinfulness or do I want to push it down the line again? And it keeps getting pushed and pushed until we lose all sense of what reality is and until the last person with the least amount of power is left holding the bag. That's why power dynamics feel really bad in this country and in this world. And so, in that, let me just address our context right now. Let me, like, take all that, I mean, of what they were dealing with. And now, if I want to put this into a really modern problem that's, like, macro, there's a movie right now uh, in Oscar contention called The Post. It's, I haven't seen it. I've heard it's good, but... It's Steven Spielberg directed, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks star, and John Williams does the score. It should be stinking amazing, and it's just not, so you're kind of disappointed. So either way, I don't know, go see it. I haven't. And either, it's profiling the story of during the Vietnam War, the Washington Post was at that time a much smaller publication. It didn't have the prominence. It had not released the story that this movie is based on. And it had not released the Watergate scandal. So it was about ready to get launched into prominence. But it comes across a group of papers and a group of studies that show that the current administration and leaders, including the White House, knew that the Vietnam War was unwinnable and that it should not be pursued. It should not have been started. It should not be pursued. I'm not trying to make a political statement. That's just what these studies showed, that this was impossible to be done. And it wasn't just like, okay, so it was at the time, Nixon was in the White House, and apparently he approached the Post, and they show this in the movie, and them, him approaching and saying, you need to not reveal that information. But it wasn't just like, oh, 
stinking Nixon. You just had a real rough go of it, didn't you? It went beyond him to the previous three presidents. So Johnson, Kennedy, Eisenhower went across party lines, all in some way co-conspirated to withhold the idea that they had led and were continuing to lead our country into an unwinnable war because nobody wanted to be the person to say, we messed up. And so you get the point where all of a sudden the Post realizes this information in Washington, and they are a small paper. They don't have a lot of power. And they are approached by the President of the United States saying, if you publish it, you will be over. I will end this publication, and I will end your chance to work again. So this whole movie is now this ethical dilemma of what do you do when there is a desire to curate the truth, but you know it, and the world would be different if they knew it. The reason this movie is getting so much attention for being subpar for its up capacity is because it sounds like a screaming or maybe looks like a blazing mirror is maybe more of where I should go of where we find ourselves right now. Again, not trying to make a political statement, but we have to admit on some level the press and what's going on in our government right now is completely disorientingly confusing that you have the current administration referring to the idea that there's alternative facts, and of course that was picked up and, and said, like, okay, they're trying to, like, say that there's alternative facts, and those aren't false facts. They're just a different kind of fact. And I'm not trying to get down on Trump, and here's why. Because I don't know that he's necessarily to blame any more than the press themselves are. Because the press, the advent of 24-hour news and multiple news networks meant that there's only so many eyeballs to get on your channel to watch your advertisers. And so you need to have a strong brand. You need to know if you want news that comes with this particular bent, you come to us and we will give it to you every time. And their ratings grew. And I'm not just talking about one side of the aisle. They both exist. And we could name them, but it's irrelevant because you know what they are. And, and so... There was such a bending and twisting of information to confirm what the mass people who would watch that network already believed. Now, you don't know where you can get credible information anymore. You don't know if you put it on, like, is this a blog? Is this blog actually somebody who really knows the truth? Are they just someone going off and railing? And then it goes into such a vortex of, I have lost ability to even want to pursue news media because... It's just noise and people trying to get clickbait and make money. And so you have at this point what people have said is the early stages of decaying of a complete culture. I'm not trying to go chicken little on us. I don't know that it has to go this way. But every single time a culture crumbles, particularly when it crumbles from within, it's because trust no longer exists on any level that we can't trust the media, we can't trust the government. When communist Russia went down, it crumbled from within because the government had such sway over reality that they controlled the press, and so you couldn't trust the press. But they also controlled psychologists who were pres prescribing people insane who did not affirm the government's ideals. And they also controlled the medical community, and they controlled the supermarkets. And so pretty soon, if you didn't play the game, 
you couldn't do anything, and no one trusted that anyone was telling the truth, and so they ended up eating each other like dogs. It's crazy how much that's starting to look like us. So, <laughs> you're like, wow, uh, this is dark. Um, Western civilization is ending as we know it or something? Is that the application point in the sermon, Ken? What do we do? <laughs> or like, what does anyone do? I think there's actually really clear ways to move forward in this text. Here's why we got into this sermon series. Do you want to know uh, just a quick transparency? If you would believe me, I'm authority. I realize so I, might, you might, I might be suspect. Um, <laughs> question everyone, including me. Um, here's why when we sat around as a preaching team and said, hey, we want to get in the Sermon on the Mount, here's why we chose it. Because we looked around at our culture, and for multiple reasons, we just said, man, this, our culture is in a place where things are more confusing and more difficult and more broken, and maybe not than they've ever been, but, but we just see it in, in stereo right now. And here at stereo, I guess would be the proper analogy. A- and Jesus has always come to a culture, a large culture that is not going towards the kingdom of God and called, a, called out a small group of people and said, if you come into my kingdom, I will teach you to live right side up lives in an upside down world and you will be a small but prophetic community. That it was a small group of 11 people praying after the crucifixion of Jesus in the midst of the Roman Empire that eventually subverted the entire known world and created Christianity to spread across both hemispheres, or all, all hemispheres across the globe. It was like 11 people. And, and so I think there is a sense of like, I started asking myself, okay, what can we do with this text that actually I think Jesus always pr- provides very simple solutions two very complex issues. And so it's like, what could we in our time, in our space, take this and do with it to actually be a prophetic culture in our city? To be one where people would say, I see the kingdom of God spilling out of that people. And so let me just apply these in in maybe three, depending on the time, ways. I think we need to adopt a, become a vulnerable people. That the first way to lead in becoming a prophetic voice in the area of just curating realities and changing realities is becoming people that are willing to step into vulnerability. Here's what I mean. There's a large amount of shame to being who we are. Again, that's true in social media. That's true just because you are broken and you are sinful. You're broken. There's things that are just weak about you. It's not sin. It's not moral. It's just weak. And you're sinful. You create a lot of that. And so there's ways where you, to be completely transparent, or not transparent, but to be vulnerable means that you need to share areas that you're broken. Again, not morally wrong. You're just a weak person. Here's a ridiculous example, but it proves the point. A few years ago, I'm in a room, six people, we're close enough, should be able to like, I don't know, be vulnerable with these people on some level. I just ripped one. And uh, it's what doctors would refer to as silent, but deadly. And there's like six of us in a room. One of them decides to be a prophet and says, who was that? I don't say a word. I'm like, no, I don't. Mm, that's pure 
unadulterated sin that has just come out of my body or brokenness. I don't know if it's moral, but I just don't want to own it. And uh, no, I just can't. That probably, I mean, it probably would be okay. Everyone would be like, okay, I guess somebody's not owning it, whatever, and we'll go on. She doubles down and just knows seriously who is it. So again, there's six of us. One of us is clearly calling everyone to the carpet. It's probably not them, unless you go with the classic smelt it, dealt it theory. And I am probably one of five other people who's just looking like they're in the middle of a moral paradox. And so I realize everyone knows it's me at this point. I can't do anything to push away from this, but I will not verbalize that it was me. I will, I can't, I won't, I won't. I will, they will go to their graves knowing how small and petty is Kent, but on some level never hearing it from my lips, so therefore having to doubt. And that is a small, ridiculous example of how sometimes just things that are maybe, maybe your fault, maybe not, and just weaknesses, to be vulnerable means to own them. And it's weird in that scenario, or at least funny, or TMI, or whatever you think it is. But then it's not as funny when, like, that brokenness hurts other people, and you push it forward. And then also, there's just things that are true about sin. To be vulnerable means to admit where you really are, not what you've conquered in the past and now can present, like, hey, here's my, here's my story that I got done with this area of sin in my life, but saying this is where I'm at now, such as two weeks ago I preached on anger. That night completely blew up on my wife, not physically but very verbally and emotionally inappropriately violent and just being cruel. 12 hours after I literally preached the sermon. People came up to me like, man, that's really helping me. <laughs> Good, not me. Um, and so I have to go into my discipleship group the next Friday and just be like, hey, guys, I know I preached that sermon. Five hours later, this is me. These are things I said. These are things I did. This is how ugly it gets. Sometimes being vulnerable is admitting where you're at now regardless of what people think of you and regardless of how many times you have to say it. Sometimes the hardest thing about confessing sin is that you walk away and fall into that same sin. And so then to confess it again and again and again and again for years or decades just shows you, it, it's, but it's telling a group of people that they're the same group of people that are walking with you, I am a train wreck. Because you are. Because we all are. And so it is very difficult. And most the, the reason that most people are able to confess maybe once but not actually root it out is because they don't realize how long and how weak they actually have to show themselves to be. But anything that comes to the light slowly but surely will be transformed. I mean, so much life transformation will be happening if we just become people that get in discipleship groups, MCs and discipleship groups, and just confess as many times as we need to. There's wisdom to confessing, real quick. Vulnerability does not mean transparency. Here's a level of vulnerability for me. When I first get married, I believe I'm going to have a transparent marriage. I had, just like I preached last week, was a man and I, m growing up, and was not unaffected by sexual brokenness and sin that very much so still plays a factor into life. And so I just remember coming 
to my wife and being like, I am going to confess every time I have a sexual thought, every time anything is, is sinful in me. Women are not prepared to handle the brokenness that exists in men in our culture, not in that area. It was crushing my wife. And so we get help, and we say, like, what do we do? I want to be transparent. I want to be open. I want to bring this out. But this is, like, I, like we, is this eroding trust? I mean, like, what do we do in this situation? She's becoming, like, a puddle of, of just self-image issues. And so they say, hey, you're being transparent, which is a good desire. Maybe you need to be vulnerable to her. Transparency is you can see all of me. Vulnerable is I will give you information and allow you to hurt me with it. I hope you don't, but I will. And so maybe you need to be vulnerable to her. She gets the key. Anytime she wants to ask, she can ask any question and you be honest. But otherwise, you need to have somebody that you both trust and they get to know everything. And years in a marriage, if she asks any question, it's this. How long has it been since you talked to that person and did they know everything that's going on? And I say yes. And she's at peace. I'm not trying to obscure truth. I'm just realizing that transparency in that scenario was not wise. Vulnerability always is. Transparency sometimes, not everybody needs to know everything. Somebody needs to know everything. And so it looks like being vulnerable. Um, oh, man, I got to your, oh, how did I get here again? There's so much. Um, this is true for our culture, too. Vulnerability means allowing people to know you're scared. We have such a level of, we desire to be a church that is reconciled across classes and across races and across life stages. And one of our biggest enemies to that is that there is a certain coolness factor to walking into the room. I've talked with people who come in, like I'm not in that class and it feels really weird. I just feel like, wow, everybody is at this level of coolness. Here's what coolness is. All coolness is projected from fear. I'm afraid, and so I project a certain level of being cool, which is just a basically a level of like superiority. And it always is just saying, and I realize this comes from me, like we're talking actively, like do we need to change the way that we dress from the stage just to be more helpful to those who are coming in from a lower class and, and not feeling ostracized from moment one? Because there's a level of coolness that just I realize we've just adopted in our culture that is just an enemy to everything that we want to see happen here. And here's what I think I know about coolness now that I'm learning. All coolness is just, it's that, it's a presence of fear. And so being the first one to just let it down and just show your vulnerability and fearfulness might allow everybody to then roll up the tinted windows and be like, whatever. Or it might create a culture where other people feel safe to do it too. Because when we become a place where it's safe to not just not be okay, but to be broken, weak, and uncool, what could God do with that? I'm praying for that. And myself first, because i got a long way to go. And i got to say this. It means pursuing vulnerability. It also means pursuing wholeness. Here's wholeness. What you say is what you do. What you think is what you feel. All those things working together. It is extremely difficult to live that way. Amazingly simple, 
Because when all those things align, you're not having to constantly figure out how you need to curate a story that makes them all seem like they align in different circles. It's amazingly simple versus complex, but it's amazingly difficult versus easy. And so you just are finding ways to, what I say is what I do. Here's a tangible reality in our culture. This isn't everybody who volunteers at SOMA, but every Saturday, Megan will get a text, multiple. I know I signed up. I, uh, I had something come up. Or I'm in Austin, Texas. Just not, I'm not going to care for kids well tomorrow um, from Indianapolis. So we've always said in our policy, hey, we understand that happens. We understand life comes up. But please help find your subs. And regularly, I just see like us burning out volunteer coordinators because there's this difference of what people say and then what they do. And it doesn't come from maliciousness. It just comes from a lack of, sometimes it just, I, I'm not thinking to the end of my week or the end of my month or the end of my year because that takes a lot of effort. But sometimes it's just learning to be like, hey, what I say is what I will do. Or if what I said, I wrote, some, I wrote a check that now I have to cash a month later, I will now subvert my desires to be consistent. And I get, and others of it is just like the sense of like, I say stuff thinking if something else better comes up, I will do that. That's a lot more where I know it comes from too. Sometimes it's honest, sometimes it's not. Either way, it, it makes it really hard for people. So I, I don't know who you are. Megan did not reveal any identity, so I could just preach really boldly and not know who you were. Um, so you were not outed right now. Um, that was just for the room. Um, don't have time for that. Uh, what you say is what you think. Hey, I'd love to, but man, I, I, I just can't come today. I would not love to at all. I'm glad I don't have to. I figured out a way to say that I was busy because that sounded like death. And so what I say is not how I think or feel. I realize that this, more than anything else, is really difficult and really hard and probably will make us really weird to actually be people who, I've been doing this all weekend. I say something and I think, do I think or feel that? It's amazing how many, I just spout off things. I don't think or feel those things. And wholeness means what I say is what I do, is what I think, is what I feel. It takes a lifelong of practicing it. Here's why it's necessary. You know why pastors are burning out like crazy right now? Because they're burning out like crazy, if you didn't know. People would be like, oh, because of sexual sin or because of like addiction to like alcohol or drugs or whatever. No, those are all secondary issues. Here's the primary issue. This is why pastors burn out. Because there starts to be a growing difference between their public perceived persona and their actual selves. And that creates such stress on a human life that eventually you break and you simply fall into temptation or sin. And that's true of everybody. Pastors just have to preach regularly and have to regularly preach at a level that they know they're not at. That's why I try to preach on a level to be like, I, I do not have this down, okay? Um, and I know sometimes it's TMI and it's vulnerable, but at the same point, it's trying to create that culture as well as it's trying to just save my soul. I said it to an MC leader, MC leader last week. If you are not regularly confessing where you're at to someone and where people think you are and where you actually are continues to grow, eventually that will, that will ruin you. It's absolutely necessary for every individual, but anybody who's leading at any level and has an ability to look like you have it more together than you do. 
most powerful stuff. Again, I know it's just like it's just going to be like weird, <laughs> the sense of like, man, like it's just easier to not say everything you think and feel. And saying the truth with love is real. Like this week, we don't need like really spicy MC attenders to be like, well, I think it and I feel it, so I just said it, and you got to deal with it. Um, you might recognize omitting doesn't always mean you're curating reality. It just means you're recognizing you're not mature enough to be able to say the truth in love at that moment. You need to be mature to say the truth in love, or you might need to admit it. You might need to say it somehow later to someone and say, hey, maybe you can say this, and not in a way that's gossiping, but in a way that's just like saying, like, I, I, I'm not mature enough to say this directly. And so there is a way to be a truth in love, but this would make us such a compelling but yet scary people because we'd be compelling people. I mean, we actually say, do, think, and feel, and are whole. But it would be scary. People don't always want to hear what is actually true. And and so I got to cut and go to communion. The only truth that failing to own that will actually damn you is failing to own that you are broken and humble and in need of a Savior, that we have all failed. If you're feeling condemnation, on some level that could be just the demonic powers that want you to feel like you can never get out from under this. But if you're feeling conviction, hey, this is you, and let's move towards health and life and life to the full in the kingdom, then that might be Jesus saying, let's go. I will take you there. And in the meantime, we take the body the bread and the cup that represent the body and the blood that were shed for all of our shortcomings and sins and curation of reality. And it did not fabricate reality. Rather, it told a more perfect one. We are now more perfectly seen in Christ than we are in who we are because Christ's reality takes ours and redeems ours. And so in a moment, we're going to ask you to come forward and you can come forward and take the bread and dip it in the cup. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't believe that Jesus has, has assumed your reality into his and has given you your righteousness and you are now righteous because of him, totally cool. Glad you're here. But don't create a disconnect of who you are and what you do. And so you feel free to be, think that and be in your chair. We want to create a reality that that's fine to be in. But don't disconnect that by then coming and performing something that that's not what you're thinking and feeling. That would be such a weird application of this text. We're glad you're here. Feel comfortable to just wrestle. That's real. And we're glad you're here. There'll be people to pray for you. Anyone, men and women, by the Connect table during that time of communion. There'll be gluten-free communion up here to my right and your left. Let me pray for us now. Father God, Lord, do the work of continually allowing us to be people that love truth. And love truth, not just by loving truths of the scripture that are comforts to our soul, but love truths that are hard things that point out that we are weak and in need of a savior, but are more true than the alternative, that we have this, that we can do this, that we've got it together. That's so exhausting. It's so damning. I pray that we would become people that would be so compelling to this world because we actually are being day by day made to be whole people who are in your kingdom, the way you envisioned life and life to the full to be. Give us human flourishing by taking away our master sculpting of our stories and our facades and give us real intimacy, real vulnerability, 
and a sense of actually knowing who we are again. I feel like as a culture, we're consistently forgetting or losing touch of what's true and what's true about who we are. We can't figure ourselves out anymore, so we string out into anxiety and depression. And maybe some of it is just we've disconnected from who and what and how we came to be and who we are now and where we go from here. It's simple, but it's really difficult. So Spirit, give us the power through your power. In Jesus' name, amen.